Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North and South America and all the ships at sea. Let's go to press. Flash, Newark, New Jersey, 1942. The sixth installment of The Pot Against America, the podcast about the HBO series The Plot Against America, based on the Philip Roth novel of the same name. Your hosts are Rob Nyer and Jim Baker, and this time around they'll be talking about the part five of the series, which originally aired on April 13th, 2020. Here's Rob Nyer. Uh, thank you, Walter Winchell, for that stirring impression of yourself. Just outstanding. I'm also joined, in addition to Mr. Winchell, I'm joined by my friend Jim Baker. Hello, Jim. Hey, Rob. I listened to a, a Walter Winchell broadcast from 1943 recently, and... Man, he was on it. He was predicting all sorts of things. The collapse of Romania and Bulgaria and uh, that 1944 was going to be a bad year for the Nazis. He was he was on it. He had good inside dope. Yeah, I mean, I, I probably most... It's interesting. When you look at the newspapers of the time, the front pages were dominated by war news. Like, every day, maps, maps, maps. And... It became, I think it became something like a sport to follow the, the progress of all the different things happening around the world, right? And they, there would be front-page stories about, about places that are now considered afterthoughts. Right. Um, yeah, it, it got to be a sport, especially when things started to go well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it was definitely sporting. And they could start telling, being more truthful in the newspapers. <laughs> Remember how we said things weren't that bad before? Well, they were really bad, but now they're not bad. <laughs> like that that uh, cartoon from the New Yorker in the 40s, two, two Japanese guys walking down a burned-out street. Well, you know, that's war. They bombed to Tokyo, we bombed Washington. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen that. Yeah. So, episode five, which was not as violent as I expected. Uh, I was glad for that. I did have a strange experience that I wanted to share with you watching it. Um, I, I've, uh, I wasn't able to watch, watch the show. You and I are speaking. I know we're not supposed to talk about this, but you and I are speaking on Tuesday night, about 24 hours after the, after after part five, first aired on HBO, and and um, I couldn't watch it last night. So, uh, but I also was up early this morning. Didn't sleep well, maybe because I knew I'd missed the episode. So I was up at 6, 6.15, and I watched the first half hour of the show, and I never, ever, ever watch TV in the morning. It just isn't a part of my routine. I've never had a reason to do it. Not, not, I don't know when, I, when I've done that. And what I found was that my, my emotional defenses are way lower at 6.30 in the morning than, than 6.30 at night. I, mean, I had, I, I was not sobbing but i did have some um i did have a bit of emotional uh, some emotional things happening and a few tears in the first 20 minutes of the show and they weren't that heartbreaking i just didn't have anything there was nothing yet set up in my mind to keep me from from being sad it was it was a really strange experience had you had a good breakfast rob hadn't had a thing i think you no see, that's, that's the problem a good breakfast would have been a bulwark against that. I think that's true. Before the next time I get up at 6.15 and watch TV, I have a big heaping bowl of Wheaties or sugar corn pops. That'll what be was a, your favorite breakfast cereal as a kid? Uh, Cocoa Krispies. Turn oh, that water brown. Turn that milk yes, brown. Chocolate milk. Yeah. Instant chocolate milk. Yep. Uh, my mother, because 
and I, I have no idea if she's listened to this podcast. She usually listens to and reads everything that I do, but she hasn't mentioned the podcast. So either she doesn't know about it or she doesn't like it. Is well, it's because she hates me. <laughs> but so I, 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 I'm a little worried, but I think that my mom was a bit overwhelmed by trying to raise two hellacious children uh, for, well, it was a lot of years. Let's just, let's just say that. And I think they reached a point when uh, it just made sense for the sake of her sanity to let us choose whatever cereal we wanted. Uh, so there was a stretch there where we pretty much ate I mean, I could eat a box of alphabets in one sitting. <laughs> and it, that, that definitely happened more than once. Um, so I can't even pick a favorite. I like them all. Choc uh, uh, Cocoa Krispies, Cocoa Puffs, uh, Count Chocula. Those are just the chocolate cereals. Alphabets uh, were alphabets, great. Alphabets, Frosted Flakes, yeah. uh, Corn Pops, um, uh, Frankenberry. Uh, I liked Quisp a lot before that went away. I actually ordered some online a few years ago. It was still good. I mean, <laughs> It was vintage. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't crisp. It wasn't repro. <laughs> Man, I had no idea. I just thought people collected the boxes. I didn't know that they went for the contents as well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the things I wanted to talk about is because, as promised, I, I, I dove into the novel since we last spoke. I have not gotten to the end, although I will before the show ends. Uh, in fact, I, I basically got to the point in which part five of the series ends. I think it's, it's a little hard to tell. We can talk about Walter Winchell and the riot maybe in a bit uh, because it's at the end of the episode. I'm not sure exactly if it tracks the book. Um, I mean, it doesn't exactly, but I'm not sure how everything fits together. But, but um, I did want to mention... For me, and so many of the scenes in the show are almost line by line renditions of the novel. I, I've I found, um, but the the biggest difference really is nothing to do with the content in terms of the. I mean, the, not the plot or the emotions of the characters. It's all they're all very much alike. The biggest difference, and this is obvious, I suppose, for people who have read the book, but. As you and I have maybe discussed, in the book, a nine-year-old has a rich, self-aware, emotional life, right? Right. And I, I, I wanted to, I pulled this quote from the book. Uh, something happens. Actually, this is a Winchell thing. I'll save that one for later. Um, there's this quote. Um, Since about three, it had been squalling steadily, but abruptly the wind-driven downpour stopped, and the sun came blazing out as though the clocks had been turned to head end. Over in the west, tomorrow morning was now set to begin at 6 p.m. today. How could a street as modest as ours induce such rapture just because it glittered with rain? How could the sidewalks, impassable, leaf-strewn lagoons, and the grassy little yards oozing from the flood of the downspouts exude a smell that roused my delight as if I'd been born in a tropical rainforest? And it goes on from there. And... It, that's what makes the, the book so beautiful. I mean, th the way he writes about uh, the family and the alternate history he cooks up, obviously, are both outstanding. And it would be an, an interesting book with just those things. But it's the, it's the beauty of his writing that I think carries us through 300-some pages. And, of course, 
we can't really have that in a show. And of course, nine-year-olds don't have those thoughts. Only like really special nine-year-olds. I wonder if maybe Philip Roth did. Is that possible? Are there nine-year-olds who think those things? I don't think they articulate them. Right. I, I think I think there are some nine-year-olds that are more in tune with the beauty of nature and, you know, they put their devices down and commune with... But, but no, they, they, I don't think they can articulate that sort of thing at that age. <laughs> but, well, I guess here's the question that I would pose, and it's probably unanswerable. Could... When Philip Roth wrote that, was he accurately remembering the sorts of sensations he was feeling when he was nine years old? Or is he simply projecting a 72-year-old's, whatever he was, uh, when he wrote that, uh, impressions of the world upon his nine-year-old self? I'm going to assume the latter. (laughs) Uh, So here's another question for you. Uh, Why does it work? Why do we accept those thoughts flowing from a nine-year-old in a book? We accept a lot from books that, because we don't, we don't go to books to reflect real life. We go to books to, to get away from them, mm-hmm. real life. So if if a book offers up a nine-year-old who's waxing eloquently about rain in a gutter, uh, all the better. Right. And the one thing that I that I that that uh, I don't know if I think I I wondered a few weeks ago why Philip was doing all these strange things, you know, hanging out with this kid who uh, who was stealing change from his mother or, or from his parents and 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 uh, getting on buses and following Gentiles around Newark. I didn't understand what the why that was there because I didn't remember it from the book. But we have now learned that, Philip, we need him to, to learn how to ride the bus all over town because in the last two episodes, we've seen him take long solo bus trips twice. Right. And they're, they're important, very germane to the plot that he get there to those two places to get to the newsreel theater and get to see his aunt at the Office of American Absorption. <laughs> yes. And he sells out poor Selden. Oh, my oh. God. I think my... <laughs> If I have a complaint about the series so far, and it's a small one, I guess I had one small one earlier, but could Selden, could he have been maybe just 90% as pathetic as he is in the series? <laughs> even gave him. Have you ever had that thought? No, he's just perfect. He's... I mean, he, they, they, they have shown one small mercy to Selden, which is that in the last episode, in, in, in part four, his his long 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 suffering father dies of a heart attack right we're told um we're told that in the show we're told that in the show in the book he's a suicide yeah he hangs himself in the closet to to put an end to his own suffering right now maybe selden doesn't even know that i mean maybe maybe mrs wish now told told him in the book right oh yeah he just died i had that thought but it but as viewers, we don't know that. Right. All we know is that he, all, I, I believe, unless there was some hint dropped, which is certainly possible, maybe in the first, in part one, maybe there was a hint that Selden's father was suffering from depression or, or had been in, a, in an institution or something. I don't know. Maybe we just, I missed that. But as no, far as. No, he's just, he's a 
got a terrible lung disease. Right. And that's that's his demise in the show. Right. It would be even worse for Selden in the show, which it, it could hardly be worse, but it would be worse if his father had hung himself and Selden opened the closet door and found him. Right. <laughs> oh, hey, but he is. Oh, <laughs> he's oh, so man. pathetic and Philip is so mean to him. It's just awful. Kids sense weakness and go for the throat. Did you not learn in school that that's the way it was? No, I, I did. I did. Uh, my throat was gone for, and I, I was uh, once or twice went, went for a throat. So I, I get it. I get it. But I just don't know that Selden, again, he just he seems like a caricature of a pathetic soul as opposed to just a pathetic soul. But maybe that's just me projecting. You know, I was thinking about something that happened to me when I was a kid. I went to a park once. I was visiting a kid in another town. And we went to a park and there was a kid there and he said, you know, they say if you do it yourself, if, do, do things yourself if you want them to be done right. Well, that's not the case with me. And I just stopped and I stared at him and I said, I have never heard, I remember thinking this, not in these terms, but I've never heard self-effacement like that from a kid before. <laughs> in my neighborhood, it's, I'm good at this, you stink. It's just bravado all the time. And it was eye-opening. <laughs> this total stranger, I, you know, never saw him again. Right. Uh, so there are kids out there like that. I mean, they're right. beaten. They're they come out of the gate beaten, and that's yep. Selden. Yep. And just to add insult to injury, injury his the the kid he thinks is his best friend sells him and his mother out. Yes, which he doesn't find out. Right. It, it, maybe there's. I think his. I almost wondered if his if his mother has some small hint, but but it never really comes up. Um, Again, getting back to the book for a second, I don't know if you remember that whole thing played out differently. Exactly. Oh, did it? I thought it was uh, pretty. No, well. it's quite a bit different. Uh, well, no, the, the part, the way Selden gets sent away is different. The part, I'm sorry, it's a minor plot point, but uh, in the show, and again, in, pe in case people haven't already noticed, if you haven't seen the show, you shouldn't be listening to this. Um, we don't want you to listen until you've seen the episode because we're going to give away everything. Um, but in the sh in the show, Philip feels so is so guilt ridden about getting Selden sent off to Danville, PA, and then knowing that by by this point that Philip himself is not going, um, um, because it's well that I probably getting too far into the weeds here, but Sel. Philip's idea is that they'll send Selden and his mother off instead of Philip and his family. But that isn't what the, the plan is, to send them all off. But because the... the um, What's their last name in the show? Wish now. The Levens? The, oh, no, the Levens. The, oh. The Levens. The Levens. The, the right. Levens decide they're not going to go. So so now it's just poor Selden and his mother who were sent off. Um, um Philip feels terribly guilty, and and, and, and and as they're leaving the Wishnows, uh, he, he goes inside and, and and gets his beloved stamp album and gives that to Selden because he feels so guilty. In the book, Philip loses his stamp album while he's off on this quest to, to take up residency in an orphanage in the middle of the night, <laughs> uh, which 
doesn't we don't that that plot that that plot point is completely dropped from the show just would have been time for it i think right which leads us to another thing at, at the outset of this on our, our first podcast i talked about how i was so thrilled that they were doing six episodes instead of eight yes because yep. i've seen so many series that have eight episodes just stretching yeah well we've come to the end of end of episode five and there's a lot left unsaid in the book which leads there me to believe 87 that, pages worth basically near right. as i can tell maybe more maybe 100 that leads me to believe that mr simon has chosen a totally different path to close this thing out well let's, let's or talk it's about that be, we, no i agree or it's going to be totally different uh delivered it's going to be the same path delivered in hyper condensed time yes um and I, I we definitely i would definitely want to talk about that when we get to the end because the the, the way the and also we got to see a, a preview for next week which i think it's okay to talk about that most people watch those um i want to go back because there was a great baseball reference and there has <laughs> been one of those in almost every episode i think um but i actually wrote down the dialogue uh, <laughs> well, they, i have so some they, notes here about it too let's see what okay you good said. okay right. and you, uh, so just to set this up they've herman has come home and informed everyone that they're heading to danville kentucky or at least that's uh, metropolitan life is that the name of the company metropolitan life's plan for them right uh, and the fbi's presumably and their aunts um, so they're heading off to Danville, Kentucky and it's breakfast time and out of nowhere, well, un unprompted, I should say, Phillips says, who do people in Kentucky root for? And his mom says, excuse me? And Phillips says, dad and Sandy root for the Yankees. I like the Dodgers. But you could also be Giants fans. What's the team in Kentucky? And um, and then Dad walks in. There's a little interlude there, and uh, Herman walks in. Dad, who do they root for in Kentucky? And Herman says, "Baseball, uh, Cubs and Cardinals, probably. Maybe the White Sox. They're all in Kentucky. No, <laughs> they're all a couple of states away." A few seconds of silence, and then Phillips says, "What's the clan?" And then it just goes from there and it's just devastating because again, and this, I hope, I don't want to sound like, I think it's belaboring the point because I don't, it's, it's reasonably subtle. But again, the point here is that these are just Americans who love baseball and probably apple pie and, and, uh, but they're going to be singled out if they go to Kentucky and they're being singled out in Newark. Uh, but that sort of. They, they, we every I think every episode there's probably a moment where we're where we're made to realize that these are just Americans. There's really nothing that different about them. Okay, your baseball thing. Sorry. It's just the father forgot about the Cincinnati Reds. Oh right. Did, did you look up? Did you look up? Um, Danville to see is it a real place? It's 120 miles from Danville. So they, it would be Reds country almost certainly. Or Cardinals country because the Cardinals had such a big radio network at right. that time. Right. So I would say it's between the Reds and the Cardinals. Yeah, that's, that's pretty. So that's the second baseball glitch that, but it's, that you've noticed. 
Yeah, except that I don't want to call it a glitch. I, the father might just realize. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. he's a uh, Herman's a Yankees fan. Maybe he doesn't pay much attention to the National League. Right. That's possible. Um, now, that said, this is uh, the. I think we're now in the spring of 1942. Is that right? I believe it's the summer. Summer. Yeah. Um, and the Reds weren't exactly uh, namby pambies. They uh, won the World Series in 19. No, they lost the World Series in 1939, and I believe they won the World Series in 1940. Does that sound right? Sounds right. Um, 39. So they, they lost to the Yankees. Yep. So so the Reds would have been well known to baseball fans and Yankees fans in particular because of 1939. So yeah, Herman forgot, but it might have just been that Cincinnati didn't sound as musical when to to the writers. Anything's possible. Yeah. I'm glad you picked up on that. I should have. Well, the problem is I pick up on stuff like that. Sometimes I think at the expense of the real meaning of things. <laughs> I worry about myself. I'll go on. So I'll, did you, I'll go on about that for five minutes. And did you, have you no. noticed that Bess's job just sort of disappeared? Yeah. Her job at the store. Um, I can't remember in the book if she quits. She does quit. Yeah. She quits because, and here's a, here's another departure from the book. Uh, in the show, Herman quits his job with because he wants to stay in stay in Newark. He doesn't want to go to Kentucky. Um, he quits his job, goes to work for his brother at the produce. What do you call a place that does produce? There's a name for those sorts of places. Um, but uh, in the book, Herman works the night shift. Oh right, right. So someone, so so uh, Best doesn't feel comfortable being away all day long when Herman's upstairs He's sleeping a sleeping right. yep I so, like when he gets the job how his colleague is hefting a bag in each hand <laughs> yep and he's doubled over struggling right. with one bag although you look at that dude and say yeah right <laughs> that guy's built <laughs> like he would struggle with one bag it, it, but it is true yeah. I, I did I did uh, have the same thought uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think Bess presumably has quit her job, but they haven't mentioned it in the book. She she takes the job to save to save money. They save for the house, but in her mind, she's saving money for the move to Canada. Right. I'd like to go back to one scene from the previous week when mm -hmm. Herman is returning from Canada and he runs into the caravan of Jews escaping to Canada. Right. And it's it's right out of a western. It's it's the guy coming upon the wagon train. Right. It was, that's the first thing I thought of, and I should have mentioned it last week, but it's a really good well, scene. And then we see his friend's car, and it's similarly loaded up. Right. Completely full inside, and also things stacked on top. It, and I think that's, that's interesting, which I, something I hadn't really thought of, which is that we've all seen, read about, or seen pictures of, refugees during world war ii whose cars looked like that right but what yeah. we're seeing now in the show are american refugees which is not something that most people think has ever actually happened although i guess you could talk about the uh, the dust bowl Th they were refugees they were economic from refugees. the dust bowl right exactly yeah. they didn't have stukas diving down at them as they made their way west right but, uh, you know, getting back to, to what Philip did to Selden, it's it's a natural thing for a kid to do when 
a fascist or anyone and any invader or other comes into the midst of a group and starts culling them and separating them right it's like what can i do to save myself right uh and one of the great things about the movie jojo rabbit that never occurred to me before i saw that movie is that those boys in the hitler youth were victims like all the other victims of nazism absolutely and I just thought of them always thought of them as part of the problem. <laughs> uh, you know, there was a guy that lived in our neighborhood who'd been a Hitler youth. And um, I never talked to him. But he was, you know, I never talked to him much. My father talked to him about it a couple times. And, um, you know, he seemed like a really normal guy. You know, he was probably 14 when the war ended. But when you take kids and put them in impossible situations where they have to make moral judgments and tell them that, this is the right decision, regardless of what your parents say, which is what they do to Sandy. Uh, it's incredibly traumatic for a kid. Right. So you come to a, a family and say, yeah, we're going to ship you to Kentucky. You're not going to go to school here anymore. You're not going to see your friends ever again. A, a kid is going to get desperate and do something evil. Well, adults <laughs> do desperate things right. too. Right. Right. But but we, we, we would typically feel a bit less sorry for the adults maybe, even though they might deserve all the, all of our mercy as well. Right. I, I've been thinking about this something a lot lately, which is that it's difficult for most of us to feel compassion for people who do things that we abhor or espouse positions that we abhor. Uh, you know, when we, recently, there have been a lot of, there's been a lot of news stories about church congregations that insist on gathering in the face of this pandemic. And I, I don't think that it's uncommon for people who don't have those same beliefs to look at those stories and say, hey, great. Fewer of them to deal with, right? Yes. I think we're, we're all familiar with that, with the impulse to feel that way. It's very natural however disgusting it might be. And I'm not going to say I've never had a flicker of those feelings. But my response, if someone said that to me was, well, you know, I'm not going to tell you that you should feel compassion for these adults who are making decisions that seem crazy and destructive to our entire society. But those people have children. And the children didn't ask to get the pandemic, they don't get to make that decision. Their parents are making them not get the be exposed to it. Their parents are making that decision for them. We the the least we can do as empathetic human beings is to feel bad for ch the children who have to who are, who are put through these things through no fault or decision making of their own. Exactly. Another thing that doesn't seem to happen in our society is these people who commit these heinous acts, which were clearly committed upon them at some point, which made them into that. Right. We, we don't hear much about how did they get to that place? How do we stop the cycle that, that, that perpetuate this? How do we, you know, yeah, we suspend the player for a year for, for hitting his, his spouse. How do we stop that cycle? Jim, when I was in junior high, uh, either the 
seventh or the eighth grade, our social studies teacher showed us a movie from the 30s, and I don't remember the name of it. You probably do. It's about a career criminal and murderer whose lawyer puts on a defense basically saying, look how this kid was raised. Do you know the movie I'm talking about? No. Uh, I want to say that who was the who was the guy who played the gangster all the time in the movies in the 30s? Oh, Cagney. Yeah, I believe Cagney was the was the was the the titular character, if you will. Um, uh, and it's I don't know if we, we must have discussed the movie afterward, but it, it occurs to me at the moment that people were saying these things 80, 90 years ago. And we have not come very far at all because you're right. We don't talk about that cycle. We don't do anything to stop it. We just put people in prison and and uh, hope the next generation does better. And it, usually it doesn't. Right. And I, I'm not I'm not offering up any solutions because I don't know. It's not right. my field of expertise. But there are there are solutions. Um, and it is true the crime rate, the violent crime rate, all around the world basically, or at least in the Western world, has come way down. People still can't haven't quite been able to figure out why, but it has gone way down. But still, there are cycles, and we've seen that especially with all the with, with the drug use um, right. in rural areas in in the U.S. It's just um, horrific, and nobody seems to really be doing anything that would help. No, there's definitely not much being done in that area. Uh, I wanted to touch on something. I, I'm just so happy that. David Simon and the team chose to, to film in the actual locations mm -hmm. because I've watched been watching a couple series, Tales from the Loop and uh, Lock and Key, that are filmed in Canada, and Canada is a beautiful place, but it it's just a substitute for America in these right. shows, and it yep. sh and it, it it just shows so much. Mm -hmm. It becomes an other world, and when you go to the real place you're gaining so much right um you know like in these shows they'll they'll cast canadians in all the a lot of a lot of the roles and they're just not americans they don't mm. british people seem to make good americans for some reason <laughs> but canadian you know these canadian actors there's just something very generic about them mm -hmm. um gonna get a strongly worded letter from the canadian embassy after this but uh Here's to authenticity. That's that's my only. That's my point here. <laughs> it certainly raises the the level of the entire enterprise, and God knows how much money HBO spent on this series. But I think they got their money's worth, right? I mean, it looks amazing. It does, and and it adds so much to the drama to know that when they talk about, because here's the thing. Some shows maybe it's not quite as important um, because the the actual place is basically unimportant. But the place is important in this in this story because part of what we're seeing is a family that is presumably going to be potentially being ripped from its home, and it's clear that everyone, well, with the possible exception of Sandy, who seems like a lost cause for the moment although i don't think that's actually true um they all love their home they talk about is it summit avenue they talk about summit avenue um yes they would like to have a a bigger place with where the kids 
have their own rooms and there's a, a lawn, but I would assume that even if they were to move, they wouldn't want to move far from, from where they are. Uh, this is their home. It's not just America, which they talk about all the time. In fact, I think Herman says that a few times. This is America. But this is, this is Summit Avenue. This is Newark. This is where we live. And if they were saying those same things and they were in Atlanta <laughs> or <laughs> Vancouver, it would just simply wouldn't resonate the same way. Right. Uh, which leads me to a question for you. Uh, can, can you think of a movie or TV show that was based on a book that looked exactly like you pictured it in your mind when you were reading oh, the man. book? Uh, I usually like to be spontaneous on the podcast. So you and I never talk about things first, but I have no answer for that. Do you have any? The one that always comes to mind is Ironweed, the, the movie uh, with Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. And Tom Waits, which was set in Albany in the in the Depression, hmm. it was exactly how I pictured it in my mind. Mm-hmm. Now, and now it helped that that I was living in Jersey City when I read the book. So, I mean, parts of Jersey City were very much like that. So I didn't have right. to I didn't have to use my imagination too much to picture, you know, the, Jack Nicholson as a bum, and Tom <laughs> Waits as a bum, you know, stumbling right. around in the cold, dark streets of Albany in 1938. But, I think that if we thought about it, I could think of a million of them, but the one that popped into my head just now was Field of Dreams because, of course, it's actually filmed in a cornfield in Iowa. That is the place. Right. Yeah, that's a good one, too. And that's you know that's one of the... I, I don't know if you and I ever have ever talked about Field of Dreams. I've sort of tired... I've tired of talking about it because I've said the same things over and over again. Um I, I really enjoyed the novel when it came out. I find the movie sort of reprehensible, artistically <laughs> speaking. Um, I do enjoy the way it looks. I just don't like much else about it. <laughs> the last time I watched it, it was with a group of uh, fans. And I said, when uh, Joe Jackson showed up, I said, get off my lawn, you World Series throwing jerk. <laughs> <laughs> And Amy Madigan's performance is just, oh, yeah. I that's one of one of my probably top ten gripes mm-hmm. about the movie. I, I like Burt Lancaster in it. Oh yeah, and James um, Earl Jones and and Costner's good. No, they all they're all good given what they have to do. Yeah, I just don't think they were given good things to do in many cases. And Madigan, I think, is probably a fine actor, but she just comes off as. And that was the one real departure. Well, there were two real departures from the from the book. One is that the James Earl Jones character was actually um, J.D. Salinger, right? And in the book, the, uh, Madigan's character, Costner's wife, basically doesn't have anything to do. She just basically says, "Whatever you want, honey. Great, thank you." <laughs> I mean, she is like supportive beyond belief to the point where it's ridiculous. If you put it in a movie, it w- people would hate it. They would hate her character because she would have no personality. Um, so I know why they made that change. I just didn't think it worked in mm-hmm. the movie and the whole book burning thing. It just, uh, um, and I'm, look, I'm no fan of book burning, but it just <laughs> didn't really work for me. <laughs> I'm glad you cleared that up. <laughs> so to which part of this episode should we skip ahead to? I feel like we, at this rate, we're, it will be, we'll be here for three hours, but 
Um, well, I, I don't have any more notes, but there were some, I know there were some things I wanted to talk about. I think we could, we could talk about the Homestead 42 Act, mm-hmm. which seems benign, just like the sending the children out into the hinterlands seems benign. And I think a lot of people don't realize that the Nazis didn't take power one day and start an open death camps the next. It was death by a thousand cuts pretty much up until World War II started. Right. They they took rights away. They, you know, then they would have Kristallnacht where they, you know, they, they were overtly, um, physically repressing the Jews. But until that point, it was a lot of laws just passing all these laws that infringed on Jewish rights. Right. And that's what's happening here. Little by little, and, and Herman points this out very well, you know, little by little they are marginalizing us and taking away, you know, our, our American citizenship. Right. And I think the show does a very good job of uh, illustrating that. One of the things that we don't know is if there's some, well, for lack of a better term, final solution in mind, or if this plan to get Jews into the Midwest and all these other places, um, Montana, Wyoming, if that's, if that's, is that the end game or is that, as we saw in Germany, the, the beginning? I think we're supposed to, look, I don't think we're ever going to find out what Lindbergh's plan is. I think we're also expected to believe that this is just the beginning. What the end is, it's hard to say for sure, but certainly this isn't the end. Well, what's and interesting is that it's the exact opposite of a concentration camp. You're deconcentrating them. Right, right. Um, whereas the Nazis stuffed Jews into these little tiny ghettos, mm-hmm. as we saw in Schindler's List, where they had two families living in one apartment. Right. Uh, they're spreading them out all over the country. Which, I guess the logic is, well, they can't band together and vote as a block or do anything as a block. This this will take what power they have away. Yes, we that was explicitly mentioned earlier, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I think there probably uh, is. I think it's fair to think that it is part of Lindbergh's plan to turn them into better Americans. I don't. I don't know that that's necessarily wrong to think that that could be something that he would have done or would have would have would have would have. And and the rabbi says. He talks about Jews being exposed to the the values and authenticity of the heartland, which is, you know, sort of mirrors uh, a more recent term, real <laughs> Americans, right? Right. You got to love that one. Uh, I think that was one of Sarah Palin's favorites, but she's hardly alone. Um, you know, it's weird to see the rabbi buy into it. Um, and I think he does. I think he's sincere. Uh, but... It, it is a different path. You're right. It isn't getting them all in one place. I guess the difference, of course, between one of the differences is that the Germans didn't have to worry about, the Nazi didn't have to worry about the, the Jews voting. <laughs> right? Right. They weren't allowed to vote. And elections were meaningless anyway by 1933 or 1944, whenever it was. So that wasn't a consideration. Right. And, and and as uh, David Simon discussed on his own podcast, that 
you know the this the the veil is lifting from Rabbi Bengelsdorf's eyes now too. He realizes yes. that he's fast becoming an afterthought in all this, and he is right. He's losing the reins on the the wagon that he has loaded up, and it's getting away from him. And and Simon's talked a couple of times on his podcast. There's a a term he's he's used for the sort of character that that the rabbi represents. Uh, I don't, and I I meant to write it down and forgot, but there was a a famous version, right from the Loge Ghetto, correct. Um, and we talked about that. We talked about like the Vichy people would say, well, yeah, I collaborated because if I didn't, it would have been worse. Right. Uh, that's always the excuse of the collaborator. Oh, you would have seen how you should have seen how bad it was if I didn't get in there and but, you know. But, but Bingelsdorf has never really quite said that, has he? Not yet. No. But it would be, it would be what he would say after the fact. Right. That would be right. his defense. Yes. Yeah. If he's hauled into court. And ask, that's what he would say. Absolutely. Right. What else? Do we, should we skip to Winchell or was there something in the middle that I'm forgetting that that that, uh, that really uh, struck you? I just think, you know, in, in this episode, the mother takes the four as the rock of the family. Yes. Um, you know, Herman is, is spiraling. He's, well, he's back and forth. Right. Right, one minute he wants he thinks he wants to stand up, for, and then he, the next minute he, he, he you almost think he's ready to pack up and go to Canada, and you're just never really sure what he's going to do next. But but you, you know what Bess is going to do, right? Uh, yeah, Bess Bess becomes the rock, and I don't blame Herman for being where he is. Uh, you know his outrage is justified, and he's not measuring what this outrage will cost his family. He's he's gone through the going through the veil there <laughs> and you know but Bess is you know well Bess has been the one who's wanted to go to Canada almost from the start right so and so she which means she's been right from the start it's been two years basically and she's been on top of things right and I I, I, I can't let one of our episodes go by without once again saying that it will be a terrible crime if 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 Zoe Kazan doesn't win awards for this this role, she's fantastic. Again, I'm not sure if this is my favorite episode of hers yet, but it's she was tremendous. And in the podcast, the official podcast, Simon credits her for essentially co-writing right. the last scene, which was unbelievably powerful. The moment that she has, she's got a lot of good moments in the series, of course, but this has got to be among the very best of them. Right, that was very revealing. What what Simon says is that he, he didn't really quite have the scene done and he discussed it with her and they worked it out together. He asked her, how would you feel? What would you do when Herman came home from the rally bruised and bleeding? Would you be mad at him? How would you react? And she worked it out herself. So, right, and once you... Once you see it, you can't even think of an, uh, another way she could have played it. Right, that would have made that would have made sense. Um, she's just great. Um, I, I I don't know. I wouldn't. What I I don't think I'll ever watch the series again because it's kind of rough. But I think that I would love to see a supercut with just her best scenes. That I would watch. Well, use your your 
strong influence on the Golden Globes and Emmy people <laughs> to push for that. So let's talk about Winchell. Okay. Um, so we get to the end or near the end, and this all tracks pretty closely with the book. Uh, Winchell is who we heard at the top of this episode, our episode, uh, to great effect. Winchell uh, in the book is fired by, he's actually not fired by the radio stations. He's fired by the Jurgens Lotion Company, his sponsors, which is how things used to work. Um, people probably don't, most people listening might not, probably don't know that, but throughout the, until the 1970s, roughly speaking, television shows and prior to that radio shows, they all had, most of them had big time sponsors and shows would be canceled because the sponsor gave up on the show, not because the network did. Right. It happened all the time, famously. Right, or they'd get a new sponsor. Or they get a new sponsor, right. right. Um, but there were there were popular shows that were canceled because they're for whatever reason their sponsor didn't want to didn't want to pay anymore um and that's what happens to winchell's show uh as a result of the rabbi's editorial in the new york times um actually i don't think it's in the times in the show but in the book it's published in the the jewish owned new york times the rabbi's editorial is published and and uh jurgens drops winchell and then he almost immediately decides to to uh to run for president more than two years before, two and a half years before the next election. Which simply wasn't done back then, was it? No, it was not. Yeah. It was not. But in the book, there's an explanation given, which is that he wants to start running so he can drum up support in the congressional races for for anti-Lindbergh anti congressional candidates. Right. So it makes a little more sense in the book that he would start so early. And in the book, there are a whole series of rallies that have nothing to do with Herman. Um, they're all over the country. Um, and, uh, I don't want to give away what happens in the book to Winchell because that might happen in part six of the series. But one of the things I wanted to mention about Winchell was that he is presumably going to wind up being something of a hero in the series. He has been to this point and I don't see that changing in the final episode and he had all these views, right? Prior to and during World War II. He was anti-Nazi. He was anti-Lindbergh. Uh, then, after the war, are you familiar with his, 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 his next, what he's best known for after the war? No. Terrible red baiter. Um, big, big pal of uh, J. Edgar Hoover's. Well, those reds so he was needed on, baiting, Rob. Come on. <laughs> Some of them did. <laughs> Some of them probably did. Uh, you and your but, buddy uh, Joe Stalin. And then he became a big McCarthy supporter, which ultimately, at least if you read, if you believe Wikipedia, and I apologize for for using Wikipedia as my source, but uh, supposedly uh, his his reputation suffered quite a bit because he became attached at the hip to McCarthy, um, who was a very popular figure for a number of years, but then suddenly he wasn't, and. And Winchell's career sort of, sort of, petered out. Um, I meant to. Uh, I could save this for next week, but I suppose we'll have other things to talk about. According to uh, Larry King, who, who took over for, for Winchell at a, I believe, believe it was a Miami newspaper, at the near the end of Winchell's life. According to Larry King, Winchell wound up mimeographing his columns, and selling them on the street corner. 
Sort of like what we're doing with this podcast. I mean, it's he does not have that end, that by different. the way, in the book. Again, I'm not going to give it away, but <laughs> yeah. that is not how things end for Winchell in the book. There's a, um, a TV movie about Winchell. Stanley Tucci played him. I think it was from about 20, 25 years ago. Uh, it was pretty good. Huh. And the way he. I did not know until I read the Wikipedia entry that Winchell was Jewish, which I suppose that most people listening to our podcast either knew or would have guessed, but I had no idea. Yeah, in, in the movie, they show him drinking a huge glass of water before he went on the air. That's why he talks so fast. And he would sit there, and he talks very fast. Uh, I mentioned at the, at the top of the, the podcast that uh, I listened to a, one of his 1943 broadcasts. He, he is 500 words a minute. It's incredible. And he would drink this big glass of water. He had to go to the bathroom the whole time. So it, it, it sped him up. That was his process. That's funny. <laughs> So next episode, um, we saw a couple of things struck me. But first, I want to, I'll mention that Simon did give us a preview in the podcast. He said, um, in the coming episode, the violence is going to grow and metastasize. So clearly, it was all sort of leading up to, obviously, leading up to the last episode. But I thought the violence was going to be, there would be more of it, and it would be worse. I'm, again, I said the same thing last week. I'm glad that it wasn't. We really need the buildup right? It's going to be right. more dramatic with five episodes, essentially, or four episodes and 57 minutes of buildup until things uh, get ugly. There's even a chapter in the book later toward, toward the end called Bad Days, which that won't be the name of the episode, but that's essentially what the last episode is going to be, right? The Bad Days. Right, which gets back to the question... Are they going to track the book or right. are they going to stop at a yes. certain point? <laughs> I think that there, there was a little clue for me that makes me think they're not going to. And that was one line in the previews delivered by an Englishman. Yes. Did you pick up on that? That was the, that was the one glimmer light at the end of the tunnel for, for our way of life. I, and I don't, again, I haven't read the rest of the book yet. Well, not the second, not for a second time, and I don't remember. But uh, it seems that Alvin's training and these repeated references to his handiness with devices is going to be an important plot point. Right. And we should probably talk about Alvin, that his, his arc is suddenly very, very different. Uh, very sort of detached from everything that's going on. He's making inroads with the Philly mob. He's flirting with his boss's daughter. Right. Um, we haven't seen him around the family in, well, he wasn't in, at all in this, in, in part five. Right. Because he had to leave. But we know he's going to be involved in some scheme with an English, presumably an English spy. Right. In the next episode. So things are going to go, things are going to get interesting. We're going to close it out with a bang, it sounds like. They have to get real interesting real fast unless it's a two-hour episode to finish up, which I don't think it is. Or they're angling for a season two, <laughs> which no one saw coming. Well, they would. They might do that just so we'll do another, another, another season of the podcast. That's right. So I want to propose something to you live. Okay. I think that 
we need to do two more episodes of this thing. Okay. Uh, I think that we'll have so much to talk about, specifically about the last episode, that we'll have to come back for one more episode and talk about uh, how we might have done things differently, if at all. Uh, alternate histories, uh, whether or not their portrayal of the war in Europe makes sense. Well, that was referenced in part five, and uh, but we can save that. Apparently, the Germans were stalling out in both North Africa and the Soviet Union, just like in real life, um, which I wondered about. Well, so, they didn't really stall out in 1942 on the Eastern Front uh, until they got to Stalingrad. I mean, they, they pretty much right. pushed ahead for most of the summer. They just didn't go after Moscow again in 42. Right. They focused in the south. They focused on right. the... Well, we can get into that later. Yes. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, let's... You don't have to commit to anything now, but um, let's see next week if we have so much to talk about that it makes sense to do one more episode. It doesn't make sense. And it will give you us something to do. You already know it makes sense. Oh, yeah. It'll All give right. us something to do because <laughs> it's precious structure in my life, man. Yeah. This is the structure. <laughs> this is all there is. You know, it seems to me, no sooner do I finish the dishes from third breakfast and I have to start preparing pre-lunch. It's just pretty much all there is is the food. Yes, so. I've got to see my wife and daughter back to school. This is making. I hope the president opens the country back up pretty soon. I'm going to lose it. <laughs> no, you don't mean that. <laughs> hey, she doesn't listen. I can say anything I want. No, I mean I know you don't mean the, oh, the, no, I the don't president mean. to reopen the country. Uh, no, I I stand on the side of science and logic and all those other wonderful things. Um, I don't think we need to say much more about that. In fact. Um, We've already said I too much. I the president in the podcast, but right. uh, people know where I stand. If they need to know, they know. If they don't need to know, they don't. Then they don't, which is great too. I don't. I really couldn't care less. Half our readers just, half our listeners just slammed the computer <laughs> shut too, and are writing angry letters to the editor. Right. Um, so, is it my turn? Yes. This concludes episode six of the seven and perhaps eight episode series, "The Pot Against America." Our music is Johnny Dresden's Teutonic-tinged version of Telstar, the Joe Meek penned hit from 1962. Excuse me. <clears throat> Join us, Rob Nyer and my friend Jim Baker, my good friend Jim Baker, next week for our last or our penultimate installment. Take care, see Rob. Jim. See you. Okay, take, see you, buddy.